0: Welcome to this episode of the series podcast, uh, Center for International uh, International Relations and International Security. My name is Marcel Sabir, and I am director for the SWANA region, Southwest Asia, and North African region. And so I will be your host for this uh, particular episode. Here with me, I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Mr. Ayad Albertadi. Our guest today is the author of The Middle East Crisis Factory. He is a writer, a human rights activist, and an entrepreneur. Uh, Mr. Albertadi is the founder of the Qawqabi Foundation. It is an organization that is dedicated to the pursuit of the future of liberty in Muslim communities and across the Arab world. It is my pleasure to have him on today's episode. And I've only scratched the surface of his extensive uh, professional and his personal background. And so for that reason, I'd like to uh, have mister al El-Mahdadi give us the proper introduction to his background. So if you can, I
1: Thank you so much, Marcel. I always uh, hate self-introductions uh, because I'm not, I'm not really good at talking about myself. Uh, sometimes I feel like I, I already told my story so many times um, because it's a painful story. Sometimes it's kind of self-triggering. But uh, I'll, I'll give you the, the version I, I, I say to, to, to my friends. Um, I'm, uh, I'm really uh, an entrepreneur who happened to become an active an activist during the Arab Spring. Um, whether it is fortunate or unfortunate, I became very popular and I got in trouble for it. Um, and uh, it ended up with me being being exiled from uh, the entire region and becoming a political refugee in Europe. Um, and uh, I came to I came to Oslo in uh, 2014. I was uh, given asylum in 2015 um i was already well known uh, which which helped really with my uh, with settling down getting you know uh, opportunities for work and funding um but eventually i um uh, we started me and my colleague ahmed ghatnash we started uh, the the foundation Kawakibi center uh which as you mentioned is dedicated to the to the future of liberty in uh, muslim and arab communities um we're not really a classical kind of human rights organization I mean a lot of human rights organization you'd see would do a lot of advocacy and uh, um, and we're, we're really we're more long termist in in this regards we're looking really at the future at uh, what we what, what we need to be doing today in order to have a good outcome in 15 years and 20 years um, you know 15 20 years is not that long it's not it's not really a long time um, uh, so I, I I mean, uh, I'm always exhorting my colleagues in the human rights community to to have a long-term view. Um, more recently, uh, I think I was mostly in the news for things related to my uh, relationship or my friendship with uh, Jamal Khashoggi, um, who uh, I mean, we have an interesting uh, history me and him because I didn't really, I didn't really know him until he became. Uh, uh, until he self-exiled. Um, I mean, we exchanged messages. We kind of were aware of each other for seven years uh, before that point. But uh, it's really after his exile that we started to build a friendship and we started to build even a partnership. We're talking about projects, etc. cetera. Um, after his murder, um, uh, I was uh, involved in certain projects that, uh, that uh, really were focused on Exposing um, the crime, but also exposing the general corruption around Mohammed bin Salman and his, uh, um, you know, his uh, his his uh, assistants and his general, you know, uh, allies in the region, etc. And for that reason, in 2019, um, uh, I was under threat myself. Uh, the CIA uh, passed a message to the Norwegian authorities, the Norwegian. Uh, um, intelligence services uh, to say that I am a target of a threat from Saudi Arabia and I was placed under protection uh, and I've been uh, under protection since then. Um, uh, You also mentioned the book. Um, The book has, again, uh, a long story because I think in the beginning of the book, I mentioned that this was not supposed to be my first book. Uh, but the book really was uh, the result of a uh, collaboration with uh, with my colleague and my friend Ahmad gotmush uh, it was written between 2016 and 2021 which is a long period of time a very very long almost an eternity in middle in the middle east especially this this uh, this time this very traumatic and uh, you know almost uh, Disorienting time in the Middle East, and so we try to. It was di- it's always difficult to write a current a current events book because you don't know when to stop the story. Um, but we wrote it. I mean, it, eventually it was it was finalized uh, during COVID. Um, you'll you'll see that some of the chapters are, were written. Uh, you know, some of the cha- I will tell you privately that some of the chapters were written in 2016. Some of them were written in 2020. Uh, but the last chapter in particular was the most uh, most recent. Um, but yeah, I mean, our, my work now is really focused on uh, I would say three or four main issues. This is this is what the Coeckelie Foundation does. Um, a lot of our work is focused on disinformation analysis, which might seem boring, but it's actually very interesting because by studying disinformation, you are kind of reverse engineering the narratives of authoritarian regimes. So you're kind of also understanding what they're doing, why they're doing it, who are they targeting. You're also starting to understand, like imagine, imagine the situation, I'll give you another example here. Imagine the situation where every piece of propaganda produced by let's say the Soviet Union in the 1960s, 1970s was captured. You could capture it, you could know where it's coming from, who they're targeting, and then you can reverse engineer it order to understand exactly why are they doing this who are they going to target next what are they hiding you know what what's what's going on um, of course it would be of immense intelligence value because you'll understand more about them than they want to let go the, the other, of course the other side of this is that authoritarian regimes especially cannot stop producing propaganda so if if I'm tracking for example dark money or or, or um, you know uh, uh, nefarious activities criminal activities, drugs uh, terrorism etc then if I get too close they could stop or at least change etc tone down their activities when it comes to propaganda they can't do that they have to always produce propaganda um, so this is what happened with the rise of social media because a lot of these regimes have started to produce to use social media as a way to pr- to produce this information which is a double-edged sword on one on the one on one side they don't own the social media Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or the Israeli regime or the Egyptian regime. They don't own Twitter, they don't own Facebook, et cetera. So they have to manipulate those uh, those platforms. Uh, of course, on the other hand, this this really has really terrible impact on freedom of expression and uh, and really freedom overall in in uh, in these communities in, in, in the region. That's one of those things, this information analysis. And it like kind of like it dovetails really with investigative reporting, et cetera. Uh, Another area is really working on intergenerational trauma and uh, and spe- specifically psychedelic treatments for uh, uh, for uh, for for trauma and PTSD. Uh, our region is full of trauma; it's packed to the brim with trauma, and every year, unfortunately, brings us more layers of trauma. Uh, and so we have to be in this conversation about uh, you know emergent uh, treatments for uh, for PTSD. Um, we're also involved, of course, we have an art and culture program, which we're about to announce. We also have a, um, um, a narrative lab, which is studying really narratives in a in positive, not, not in, in terms of defense defensive narratives, basically like looking at the authoritarian regimes, but also like talking about how we can produce a good narrative. Uh, so this is kind of a summary of what we're doing. And we're really, like I said, we're really looking 15, 20 years into the future.
0: I uh, really thank you for sharing your background yourself, and of course, as you mentioned, um, I mean, a lot of your background comes with uh, aspects of your life that have uh, immense trauma and immense challenges and difficulties. So I do appreciate that you uh, explaining that to, our, that to our audience today. Um, I, I'm also, you know, happy that you're able to go through the different organ, you know, things that you're doing in the foundation, which is very powerful um, between disinformation, um, between, you know. Uh, understanding intergenerational trauma and having an arts and cultural aspect as well as you're able to divide uh, dive in a little bit into your book which we were going we were about to segue into um, I think what's interesting is you mentioning between um, you know having your work done between 2016 and 2021 it is evident that you know the region has drastically changed and we will be um, looking and being hopefully being able to discuss and deep dive into some of the current events of 2022 that's of course, not mentioned in your book because the the region is ever so changing and that sometimes there's just not, you know, there's not a level of predictability that we can, you know, prepare for, Um, but hopefully we'll be able to use the principles, the the dynamics, the themes of your book, um, and we'll be able to kind of go through the current events um, by analyzing through the frame of the book that you've written, The Middle East Crisis Factory. And so with that, I really wanted to talk about what um, your first part of your book really, really does well after going into an historical analysis to build and set the backdrop for what you call uh, the vicious triangle. And so I want, I would like to, you know, ask you to describe what is the theme of the vicious triangle in your book, The Middle East Crisis. Um,
1: I'm just get, grabbing a copy myself because uh, it's just like, sometimes you forget your own book. But uh, just to give you a bit of uh, background about The Vicious Triangle, um, The Vicious Triangle was actually initially the working title of the entire book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, there was a book which was published, uh, I believe in uh, 2018, in Italian, not in English, called The Vicious Triangle. Uh, So there was an initial version of the book that was actually written in English and then translated into Italian that was published in Italian as called The Vicious Triangle um and there is a chapter in the book called there's a part and a chapter in the book called uh, the vicious triangle so it's currently it's a chapter it's the longest chapter in the book um but then in the original book it was an entire part so the case studies were much longer um so we had to kind of summarize them a lot uh, for this particular uh, uh for this particular edition the english language the global the uh, international uh edition uh i started to really talk about the Vicious triangle i think in must have been 2012 2013 uh, specifically with the rise of uh, of uh, isis and uh, of course 2011 we saw we saw a new kind of politics uh, in the middle east because we had a new kind of citizen in the middle east that was created in the street it was more confident and more uh, you know more demanding of their rights etc um uh, uh, with the rise of, uh, so I mean, and at the same time, there's there a context to this, of course, is that for a very long time, uh, there was this belief among many people in the region, including people who don't really like violence. There was this belief that violence is the only way, really, because these regimes are just so entrenched and they're so powerful. They're just, like Whether they are supported by the West or whether they are opposing the West, they're just like armed to the teeth and they're not budging, and violence is the only way that can, that can budge them. So that was the belief, and that belief belief in the idea of violence really drove um, uh, Islamist uh, jihadist movements for, you know, for a long time. And so when we saw the first domino fall in early 2011 with the Tunisian uprising, and then we saw that extend to Egypt, Um, In February of 2011, uh, another world opened up to a lot of people in the region. Of course, we're talking about the Middle East and North Africa. Um, I mean, you might call it Southwest Asia and and North Africa. Uh, I prefer, uh, Mina, we can discuss this uh, uh, later, but uh, um, it's a region of around 600 million people. I mean, if you count all of the Arab countries, but you also add on top of that, uh, uh, Israeli Jews you add on top of that um, uh, Turkey and Iran uh, you get around more than 600 million people um, and these people have been living more or less similar political realities for the last uh, you know, century or so with of course important differences between regimes they're not really like when we look at the 2011 uprisings some people would say this is one uprising it's not it's a multi- multiple local multiple uprisings each having their own character uh, but then when we saw the fall of these regimes with no violence non-violent completely non-violent popular uprisings regimes that were so formidable like you know Mubarak or like uh, you know like uh, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh in in uh, in, um, in Yemen or Gaddafi in Libya they seemed like you know, formidable, like forever. Um, And they were shaken just by people taking to the streets with no guns. That did something, it damaged, it deeply damaged the idea of violence. Uh, It was really within this context that in May of 2011, Bin Laden was assassinated by uh, by the Americans. And it seemed like a good epitaph for that chapter. It seemed like, you know, he died but then the idea of violence, which he represented, died four months—just four months before that—died ju- with the Arab Spring. And so there was this optimism there that maybe we can move beyond uh, this idea that violence is the only way, and we can start to look for other ways, more sustainable ways, more uh, you know, um, uh, more intersectional ways for organizing. And maybe we can, you know, this can pivot because keep in mind that if you have the, the problem with armed resistance. Is that even if you win, you end up with a situation where you have warlords. You have people, people who are the most uh, successful are the people who are more successful in fighting in killing. Uh, and this does not really bode well if you really want to have, you know, a democratic, uh, you know, civilian rule, etc. So unfortunately, this is why in many, in many cases, this really there's a period of kind of warlordism that kind of precedes. Like we're seeing this, for example, in Libya. Um, but uh, it's really within this context when ISIS started to rise again. It was really the Syrian uprising and the militarization of the Syrian uprising, the 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 the, the almost the international conspiracy to ensure that the Syrian uprising does not succeed and remains, you know, remains uh, where it is. Uh, that really reintroduced the idea of violence into the psyche of the region. Uh, Libya too, but Libya not as much because of the Libyan uprising, uh, sorry, the Libyan, the war, uh, the, the NATO uh, operation on Libya was limited. It was it really, it wasn't as devastating as uh, as, as the situation in Syria. Uh, so with the rise of uh, the rise of Islamic Islamist groups in uh, in, in Syria, be it Al Qaeda or uh, you know Al Qaeda-aligned group, this is al-Nusra or uh, ISIS. That's when the kind of the vicious triangle became kind of more clear, and started to kind of tweet about it. Um, it's uh, the idea here is that there's an interdependent relationship between tyranny, tyranny tyrants, terrorists, and uh, and uh, uh, foreign intervention. The idea is that there are interlocking narratives that they all use. So foreign intervie- foreign occupiers generally for you know foreign. Uh, uh, you know whether it's occupiers, whether it's colonialists, whether it is aggressors, etc. the narrative that they use is they say, either they say we are here to fight terrorism, which is very popular. Uh, this, is, this is the, the narrative that the, the Americans, for example, used when they invaded Afghanistan. Uh, it's also one of two narratives they used in Iraq because the other narrative was like, we're here to, to bring democratization, et cetera. The other narrative, this is one, like we're here to cut to, to counter terrorism. The other is we're here to counter dictatorship. We're here to actually knock down dictatorship, which is, of course, the American, for example, narrative when they invaded Iraq. Saddam is the tyrant. We're here to remove ter- to 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 fight tyranny. Uh, now, if you look at the dictators themselves and look at their narrative, their narrative goes, "We are. We have to do this. We have to be in power because we're fighting terrorism." Uh, this is what most dictatorships do they in fact sometimes they are they 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 want their country to have a touch of terrorism because that would that would ensure that they can rule it forever in the name of fighting terrorism but you know you you know the CC regime for example CC came to power and on the back of this like' war on terrorism Assad... Uh, you know, they all use it, really. I mean, and they use, it, of course, to go beyond this, to go after of civil society, etc. cetera. Uh, funny, uh, funny thing to mention here, but the women in Saudi Arabia who uh, tried to defy the ban on driving because, you know, women were at one, at one point not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. The women who defied that and they were imprisoned because they actually drove their cars, they were put on trial under a section of the law for terrorism. So they were considered to be terrorists because they went, they, they drove their cars. So this shows you how much they, they abuse, you know, war and terror, uh, the idea of war and terror, which is like a godsend for all dictators. So here, they, if you're a tyrant, you also say you're fighting terrorism or you say, I'm fighting Western, Western colonialism, Western intervention, etc. Again, this is what Assad, for example, said, you know, I'm, I'm fighting, I'm fighting Western, a West, there's a Western conspiracy against me, etc. The Taliban, of course, famously do that. Uh, the Iranians do that, etc. Saddam, of course, did it as well. And then, when we look at the terrorists themselves, the terrorists also either they say we are here to fight, to fight dictatorship, or they say we're here to fight foreign intervention. Mm-hmm. And so we have this this triangle of interlocking narratives where they they all kind of depend upon each other. So, in a sense, when we have more when, when we have more tyrants we also get more terrorists and more foreign intervention. And we get more foreign intervention, we get more tyranny and more terrorism. And if we get more terrorism, this also creates a situation for, you know, more tyranny and more uh, foreign intervention. So mm-hmm. unfortunately we get this vicious triangle. That's why we say the, like vicious triangle. And within that triangle is our societies because our societies, the more this this spins, the more this, this tightens and becomes, you know, uh, you know more, more defining of the region, mm-hmm. we're suffocated. Because right. the space, the space for civil society is reduced more and more and more. But this is the idea of the of the vicious triangle.
0: Right. Um, you bring a lot of case studies uh, up in your description of the uh, triangle, and so I actually was hoping that we could go a little bit deeper into that. You bring up the history of Iraq, which is not only in your book but also in the conversation that we've been having right now. Um, and um, within the last forty eight hours. There has been a lot of unfolding in the greens and Baghdad. I wanted to see that, you know, with the political and civil scenery in Iraq that's happening right now, um, can you explain this, at least within the scope and the context of what you've described as, as triangle, building up on it? Because I know you've already built up on it in your book up until 2021, but what we are seeing right now as in yesterday and the day before yesterday and uh, late August, 2022, um, what are what are we currently see, uh, seeing happen in Iraq?
1: so it will be uh, slightly difficult to fit uh, recent the most recent developments in iraq within this uh, this context mainly because it's really a dispute between uh, different parties who are all not innocent
0: mm-hmm.
1: um uh, as i said before uh, in many countries you have kind of the, the 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 central state kind of collapses but you end up with us with a situation of warlordism the iraqi state is is a fragile state. I mean, uh, there, there's this index called the fragile state index, uh, which kind of like if, you know, if, if a country I think scores 100, that means it's a failed state. If it's like zero, then basically it's a very strong state. And Iraq I think is the 23rd most fragile state in the world. It's just above, it's just below Libya.
0: Thanks.
1: So the central government really is very weak. Mm-hmm. Who actually has effective control? It's militias. And those militias are, uh, majority of the militias are basically religious parties. So it's mm-hmm. political parties that have their own army, so to speak. Um, and a lot of these, uh, you know, because, because of the, the history really of Iraq, Iraq is, uh, you know, if, if we take the, the Arab part of Iraq, which is like not, if we don't consider Kurdistan in it, yeah. then uh, most Arabs, you know, most Arabic speakers in Iraq uh, are Shi'as,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and Iraq is important, very important for Shia history. Uh, I mean, it's basically in, in a certain way you can even say that um, you know it's it's uh, it's it's one of the it's this spiritual center of the Shia, mm-hmm. of the Shia world. You know, Ka, you know Karbala happened over the Karbala is there, Najaf mm-hmm. is there, Kufa is there. These are really important uh, uh, cities, and you know, with very important history when mm-hmm. it comes to Shiaism uh arab shiism also is slightly different from iranian shiism and there's always been this uh, this conflict uh, uh this kind of competition within shiism between who who really has the religious authority it is, is it's uh you know cities such as Qum in iran for example and the iranian cler- clerics which have a different interpretation of uh a religious authority which is like Wilayat al faqih or is it uh you know the uh, the, the the arab Iraqi um, uh, uh, clerics uh, such as Sistani. So, of course, the interesting thing is that it's talking about Iraqi, sorry, Iraqi, sorry, Arab versus Persian over here is like kind of contentious because Iraq and Iran were always next to each other, and uh, Iraqi culture is the is the is the Arab culture versus is closest to the to Iranian culture, including in dialect, including in you know food and uh, you know uh, 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 what do you say customs, etc. Uh, but to so so let me explain what just happened first, and then we can see maybe we can discuss this together how this fits within the triangle. Um, just to explain, yes, the the Iraq actually had uh, a very large uh, wave of protests before COVID. This was just before COVID, uh, which was against. It was basically. A nationalistic uprising, people were very, a lot of them were very young, uh, born after 2000. Uh, They were demanding a national, like basically a nationalist, um, uh, democratic, secular Iraq. By secular here, I don't mean not, not religious. I simply mean not sectarian. So they, they wanted a, a country which is a country for everybody, not only for Sunnis, not for, only for Shias. not only, In fact, they even like there, there were some people who held out signs saying we demand the return of Iraqi Jews to their country. Uh, Iraqi Jews, Iraq actually had a big Jewish population that was expelled from Iraq uh, in the 19, 1950s. Uh, early 1950s, and uh, in fact, a lot of the most far-right politicians in in, uh, in Israel today are actually of Iraqi heritage, uh, which is interesting because these are the same people who march in the streets and say death to Arabs, but two generations ago, they were Arabs, so it's an interesting story. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, there was that. There was that uprising. The uprising was basically met with extreme violence by mostly Iranian-backed militias. They gunned down you know young people by the hundreds uh and then covid happened and when covid happened basically you know it it's forced an end to to this wave but that anger anger remains there is some intersection between this and between uh what just happened but it's not exactly the 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 case Mm -hmm. Um, this might be a little bit more too complicated or a little bit complicated but i i trust the sophistication of your followers and 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 the people who are listening, but like basically in in Shia Islam, uh, there is this uh, this um, uh, concept called marja al taqlid. In Shia Islam, unlike in Sunni Islam, in Sunni Islam you can actually take the fatwa. The fatwa is basically a religious opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, never mind how it is covered in Western media that fatwa means death, death threat, threat or something. It's not like that. Fatwa means religious opinion and it's non-binding. It's simply basically is like, okay, for example, here in Norway, uh, when Ramadan comes, I can't follow the sun because the sun doesn't set in, in mm-hmm. summer. So yes. if I actually follow the sun, then I'll like basically I'll, I'll I'll fast I'll break my fast at 11 p.m. or something. So mm-hmm. I need a fatwa, a religious opinion, to tell me okay, like what what times do you do you follow? So anyway, uh, in Sunni Islam, you're allowed like uh, if 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 uh, you're allowed to follow a fatwa of someone who might be dead a long time ago. So you might basically open a book and find okay, this guy lived a thousand years ago, he gave a fatwa, and if it makes sense, I can follow it in Sunni Islam, in Shia Islam you're not allowed to follow the fatwa of someone who's dead in most cases so you need someone who is living today and working today to give you that opinion um there's very slight uh, exceptions to that so for example if you're if you're an old person and you're following someone for a, a marja for a long time he dies and you don't want to change everything etc so like some exception but essentially speaking for this reason uh, the Shia community always needs marjas. They always need uh, people who issue religious opinions because they need to be alive. So this creates a situation where uh, the there's always there's always a religious authority. They're they always required to to have living religious authorities who have the right uh, scholarly tools in order to issue opinions. Uh, in Iraq, unfortunately, there was because of the inc- repression during the Saddam era uh, and because of you know, the extreme repression really, it's like the history of Iraq is extremely traumatic. The history of the Shias of Iraq is also extremely traumatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, they were underclass in their own country for a very long time. And there's a history of basically persecution and, and really almost bordering on genocide when it comes to like, if you're talking about like the Wahhabis, for example, did, did, to, did to Iraq in, you know, 1700s, 1800s. Um, but this creates a situation where you had too many competing religious scholars. I wouldn't say competing, they were basically like, you know, people are, are free to f- to follow whoever uh, religious opinion they want, but then when, when this became political and the state fell, each of these uh, religious scholars, or most of them, I don't want to say most really, a lot of them ended up with their own political party, so it became kind of a political party behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, One of those currents was what's what's called the Sadrist current, which is basically Mm -hmm. uh, represented today by this this young, uh, not really young, he's not really young anymore, but he was young within the context of the people
0: uh,
1: around him at the time, Basically, Muqtada Mm -hmm. al-Sadr. The the followers of al-Sadr, Sadr Sadr himself is not a religious scholar. He does not have religious, he, he is from a religious family but he himself does not have the right credentials to issue fatwas. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes from, uh, so the, his following comes from some of the poorest regions of Baghdad, some of the, re- the poorest places of, uh, uh, of Iraq. And they're youthful, it's a youthful movement. So people who follow Sadr tend to be youthful, okay. uh, you know, uh, not very privileged, underprivileged, but they're also, they, he also employs a certain Iraqi nationalism and he's against, he's opposed to Iranian influence in Iraq. Mm. Uh, and this is important because Iranian influences Iraq has really captured Iranian ir- Iraqi uh, uh, electoral processes to the point that it's not, you can't really call it a democracy anymore because uh, it's really run for the benefit <coughs> of these, of these uh, political parties,
0: right. which again,
1: each of them has their own army. So it's not exactly a regular political party, right? It's more like a mm-hmm. militia. Um, so what happened is that because he himself was not a polit- his, is not a, a religious authority, most of the people who follow him, uh, they follow him politically, not religiously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And more recently, they used to follow another person who's basically aligned, you know, like his, his name is Ha'iri. Um, and re- recently this person, uh, it seems that there is some Iranian influence and he basically quit he closed his offices and he said, it's very unusual for someone to do this, but he basically said, I'm no longer, I think he's 80 something years old. Uh-huh. And he said, I'm no longer issuing fatwas and I recommend that the people who are following me follow Khamenei in Iran. Yes. Uh, and uh, he also issued a statement which kind of throwing shade at Muqtada Sadr himself for being not a religious scholar and basically saying that, you know, you he, he should like, it's it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's it basically was it triggered a lot of anger in in uh, yeah. southern himself, and he said, "I'm going to leave politics, etc." And this kind of the situation escalated because the people were following him. They basically stormed the Green Zone, which is like where the uh, American embassy is, yeah. uh, and there was like a slight towards violence, several people killed, etc. Until forces intervened to 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 stop the escalation. So it's mm-hmm. really um, it's really a fight. Within ser- ser- several parties, because Sadr, what he tried to do, and Sadr himself does not have clean hands. Let's, let's just let's just make that clear. He's basically also another militia leader. However, he he is uh, you know he's at, he is opposed to Iranian influence, and he tried as much as possible to cut out the pro-Iran bar- bar- parties and to create a government without them, which is uh, which really didn't work out because they they were able to outmaneuver him. But anyway. I know this is kind of uh, might seem convoluted, uh, and it took us away from the, the vicious <laughs> triangle itself. Not at but, all. Uh, but I, I guess this is why it seems very. This is the thing with with the uh, with countries where there are so many different political actors, I see. Uh, and there isn't like there isn't a united body politic. The body politic mm-hmm. is split among different groups. It becomes just very confusing. Yeah. Um, if you know, and if you're not tracking very closely, you might not understand what's happening. Of course. Uh, sure. But if we want to like zoom out and kind of give a summary, it's really because there is a conflict within Iraq about the future of Iraq and really about Iraqi identity. Yeah. Um, and uh, there is Iranian intervention within Iraq, uh, which is deeply rooted, mm-hmm. uh, but also. It's coming against a new generation of Iraqis, including, of course, Shia Iraqis, who do not mm-hmm. uh, think that they, they they don't want their country to be run by Iran.
0: Right, right. Um, I think it's uh, where you can tie it all in. And the reason I think it's important to talk about these current events, because they stand for, uh, again, in the macro perspective, they stand for something deeper in terms of the development of post-Saddam Iraq, the post-ISIS presence, and the post U.S. occupation in Iraq, the presence will never, you know, there will never not be a presence of Western influence in this country that has gone through so much. And so uh, I think that we see that the propensity and the potential for this triangle that you described to continue tightening uh, like on civil groups, civil society organizations. I will go on a quick little tangent in terms of Iraqi identity, you said the Jewish population. I've had the pleasure of, you know, being exposed to uh, Dr. Omar Muhammad of the Maso- uh, basically of the projects in Mosul, Iraq, uh, where you know they are rebuilding the city of Mosul in the post ISIS context, and they talk about the cultural and you know the just the societal importance of bringing in communities together, and so they do work with the Jewish population and uh, people of all different backgrounds who have been exiled and displaced through conflict. And so you see that and you juxtapose the, the work and efforts to rebuild Mosul, uh, to build Mosul into a better city um, by civil society organizations. And you put that next to the fragility of the state still, which is encroaching again on the, on the ability for organizations to rebuild identity across Iraq, not just in one city. Um, it's, it's a very uh, important thing to take a look at and uh, to understand also, And these timelines and, you know, um, amidst the the influence in the region and the country specifically, um, now we are seeing, you know, what U.S., you know, U.S. interests have not particularly wanted anyways in, in the beginning, which is Iranian influence, something that has filled the vacuum, has filled in a particular gap in the triangle. Or has always been there, and in, in different contexts. But as you describe, um, no one part of this triangle can grow without reinforcing two other components of the triangle. And we are seeing shift, but the shape and the dynamic of the current events in Iraq is still within this vicious cycle, unfortunately, until there is something that breaks it and. Um, It can only be implied with the, you know, with the role in which the people within the triangle and we envision uh, the ones trapped within the triangle, which is the populace, the population, the civil society organizations, those seem to be the only way to break, potentially to break this cycle. So I do apologize for throwing that question out at you because of how developing the situation is, but I do believe that it's very critical to look at this and not and not forget the the components that have led up to this fragility, to these instances of leadership and the meddling and these opinions and just the political dissatisfaction among the people in Iraq. And I think this example can be um, presented uh, across the region uh, as they continue to face challenges brought on by this. This of I mean, I'll,
1: I'll give you, I'll, 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 I'll just comment on that by giving you kind of a, a long-term perspective here. Um, a lot of the people, of course, we're talking in the book, for example, we're talking about a lot a lot about Saddam and about the, the, the invasion of Iraq. But a lot of these kids who are in the protests were born after that. They never knew Saddam. Yeah. yeah. Um, and sometimes we forget because like when we study history, it, it seems that history is closer than it is. But for a lot of these people, they, they grew in the shadow like, of, mm-hmm. of, of that. Um, Iraq is a growing country. It's one of the countries in the region that has the some of the highest population growth rates. This is actually in, in contrast to Iran. Iran actually has an aging population.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: at some point, I think Iraq is on track. The population of Iraq is on track to double, I think, within the next 30 years or so.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: while well, Iranian population is peaked and is actually slightly reducing. Uh, and this is something to watch out for in the long term because the, the shift in, in median age in a country shifts as politics as well as in, in, in economics and politics, et cetera, in, in, in certain ways. Um, but also, I mean, you're talking about Iran filling in the, the, the vacuum. The difference between American influence in Iraq and Iranian influence in Iraq is that the Americans can always leave, just like they left in Afghanistan, but mm-hmm. Iran is always there.
0: Yeah,
1: and that's why the Iranians have been for the last really, you know, 20 years almost. They've been playing the waiting game. They're like, you know, the Iranians are the, the Americans are going to leave eventually, and uh, it's true. The Americans want to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, to what extent on, or how, etc. That's that's yet to be seen. But you know, we we can see that they're scaling back their their uh, their their, uh, their presence, and they've been scaling it back really for decades. Um, and the Iranians are always going to be there. And so they, uh, you know, unfortunately, as 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 terrible as the situation is, and as uh, as bloody as the Iranian um, intervention in Iraq is, uh, it can get worse, unfortunately. Um,
0: I wanted to segue in into our next discussion that dives more into the aspects of terrorism and occupation you briefly mentioned afghanistan Um, and we've talked about the u.s occupation a little bit uh, in iraq it's much more detailed in your book so i do recommend our audience to of course uh read those components of the book and um but uh we had an instance a situation in which uh within the last month u.s officials claimed that who had successfully targeted and killed Al Qaeda's leader, uh, Al Zawahiri. who was killed in Kabul, Afghanistan. Very interesting uh, in terms of uh, initially to give a little bit anecdote. It's very interesting in which in how the news developed initially. Um, I remember there being local reportings at the time, based in uh, based out of Kabul. The, some of the few remaining media's media organizations in Kabul, Afghanistan, talking about in just a, an explosion in one of the districts in Kabul and uh, that it took a little bit of time for the Taliban to acknowledge what what was the cause of the explosion. And then we do have this intelligence reporting uh, under the Biden administration coming in saying that, um, you know, this was related to the drone, a drone strike that had targeted and successfully killed Al-Qaeda's leader. This news uh, comes almost a year after the collapse, what has what many consider uh, one year anniversary of the collapse of the Afghan government. On August 15th, President Ashraf Ghani, he led the presidential palace, Taliban came in. Now today being August 31st, 2022, is actually ironically the one-year anniversary as from the official, uh, considered the official withdrawal date of the United States forces and NATO allies uh, after almost 20 years of long war and occupation as part of the war on terror in the post-911 climate. Um, all that to be said, to come back around Uh, the Taliban regime has regained control of essentially all of Afghanistan. And in less than one year in, the United States continues to uh, operate counterterrorism um, operations in Afghanistan for almost what it did about over 20 years ago, signifying a growing presence of al-Qaeda under the Taliban rule and a growing presence of other nefarious groups, including but not limited to ISKP, which is the Islamic State of Khorasan, um, in Pakistan. And so I, reflecting on all of this, uh, what is your commentary of the future of counterterrorism interests in Central Asia, the, the the possible embarrassing blow to counterterrorism to have this situation, to have uh, al-Qaeda leader under the noses of the Taliban in the center city of Kabul, a place that was heavily fortified and uh, representative of U.S. missions for democratic institutions in in countries like Afghanistan. Um, what does this have to say about the future of a country like Afghanistan and uh, Western interests there?
1: Um, let, let's, let's break down the question first because um, I, I feel it's a very long question.
0: It is a long so, question. It's a yes. discussion. <laughs> it's yes.
1: So, so f- first, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not so sure that so first first of all it's it's interesting that we're talking about the presence of terrorism in Afghanistan when we're forgetting that the Taliban themselves is a terrorist group. Uh, uh, of course, yeah. uh, this this is really interesting because right now because they're in governance they're, yes. they're in government and they are expected to act as a government. Right. We are expecting them to be acting against terror groups. Yes. Uh, forgetting that these are actually their ideological brethren. Right. I mean, they, they are actually their their allies, you know, and, you know, that the, for example, that I, I believe the Minister of Interior himself is basically, is basically on the FBI most wanted list. Mostly. Um, if, Mostly. If I'm, yeah, if I'm, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So it's interesting here that we're already can you can see that our narrative has already shifted, even our own expectations of the Taliban has shifted. And I'm not saying it shouldn't. I'm just making an observation because it. I believe it should shift because once they are in government, whether we like them or not. I mean, I I mean, I I tell people if you want to consider uh, Assad to be to be in government to be to be a government, and if you want to consider uh, MBS to be a government, these people are are not exactly. They don't have clean hands then why not the Taliban? Uh, I'm not saying it, of course, because I want to accept because, because I like the Taliban. I'm just saying that if once you're in governance, you, there's, different, there's a different set of obligations imposed upon you, and you have to act differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a responsibility in United Nations language, you have a responsibility to protect. You have to, you have at least the responsibility to, to protect the people within that area. Of course, a lot of the time, they don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what was really most interesting to me with the Zuhari, Zawahiri strike is really how he was killed, uh, and I think uh, it, it signaled that the, the the Americans, after twenty years in Afghanistan, where they basically drone bombed weddings and and uh, and and uh, and villages, etc., uh, killing a lot of innocent civilians. Now you're learning the lesson. Mm-hmm. Because they killed him using what's called uh, like AGM 114 Hellfire missile, which actually is not exclusive. It's basically more like uh, uh, a blade uh, which does not have an explosive charge. So it does not kill it only kill kills one the, the person who's targeted. It doesn't really destroy the the, the region. So basically they went, they made the statement made a big big fuss about saying that, oh, we targeted him using these weapons. And he was the only one who was killed. Even people who are just under him in the building, nobody was harmed. He was the only one harmed. Now you're telling, now you're saying that this, like uh, like, like this is, sens- suddenly this is sensitive for you. So- suddenly our women are, 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 and, and children are, are, their lives are sacred to you. Now after 20 years and after a disaster, um, I mean, yeah, and maybe better, better, better now than, than, than ever, but like what, do you want cookies for not killing children? Uh, I mean, it's just it's it just insane the mm-hmm. the idea that now we're supposed to be thankful for the Americans for not killing innocent civilians.
0: I pause uh, a quick question yeah. to you just for us to discuss, um, and it came up in my head. Um, the does it is it potentially very. You know, can it be considered very starking that you know the valid point that you're presenting about the ways in which they not only count, uh, carried out the strike and but the way they've communicated it is an effort to separate themselves from? What I mean is because in the same respect, the United States government. The Doha pro- the Doha deals the peace talks the everything that has led up and to why uh, we are not seeking to legitimize the Taliban this question you said well the Taliban is you know terrorist organization, so what do you expect um I posed posit the question initially about uh, through the frame that there was a deal in which the reason this process has happened the U.S withdrawal happened was on these conditions which have been clearly broken in which the Taliban would not attack U.S and Allied forces and which it would um, basically work in effort to combat terrorism, which is still, again, uh, it's like, looking, like a, looking at oneself in the mirror, which is, you know, very ironic. Uh, but in the context of this particular uh, counterterrorism operation, that the U.S. somehow seeks to separate itself from its efforts on the same very grounds that are shared amongst the Taliban. The U.S. continues to operate independently in Afghanistan, which this happens to be the same exact city and same exact country in which the Taliban operates so they do not identify and uh, the United States does not acknowledge and identify the Taliban it does not acknowledge yeah that you so are this the- was
1: this was actually clear from the time that they so when they pulled out
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so this was not of course the Americans did not plan to pull out this way it it really is a plan like their the, the plan simply did not go it just went cool. awry. uh yeah. But part of part of the collapse of uh, of Republican of Afghanistan really was the collapse of American intelligence infrastructure, which yeah. means that they don't have they no longer have uh, as strong of uh, you know of, of a network intelligence network where they can actually know what's what's happening on the ground. Yes. So this is dangerous for them because I th- I guess because they're tracking they've been tracking Zawahiri for almost 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, he would make a showing. Of course, his, his, his when he died, he was already a very old man. And it's very highly unlikely. Uh, I think it is extremely highly unlikely. I'd be very surprised if he was active at the time. I mean, he was, already his, uh, his, his, he, was, he was already isolated from the rest of his movement. I don't think he was really a daily leader in the sense that he actually issued orders. Mm-hmm. And anyway, jihadism, the jihadist, Salafi jihadist scene has already transitioned, especially after 2013 and the this, this Syria experience. Yes. Um and, and so this is what the, what the Taliban eventually said was uh yeah, uh we he was there, but he wasn't active. So we were not in breach of our uh agreement because we, he was not an active okay, he's a terrorist, so he's not an active terrorist. Okay. Uh eventually the problem that the, the 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 Americans would have here is really that uh, I mean, I, th- I think this is, this is the thing that we find like just so infuriating that they've been in Afghanistan for 20 years and the narrative that they use, I mean, and, and you must have been very young when the invasion actually happened, but I was I was, I was in my 20s and I remember everything. Um, the exact same narrative that they used in 20, 2001, the exact same tropes, Yes. the exact same racism is mm-hmm. exactly as it is 20 years later. Yes. They invaded and occupied a country for 20 years and they didn't learn anything about that country. Not anything about its culture, not anything about its its, its values, its people, how it runs, how it self-identifies, nothing. Yeah. The American, I mean, this is, this is the thing of, this is really an, an, um, an, an, a reflection of empire because when you have an empire, the people who live in the motherland, they don't really care about what happens out there. Uh, they, they don't have to because they just you know, it's 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 there for their for their for their, whether it's for protection of their for their prosperity. But they don't mm-hmm. really have to to, to to know much about you. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, I actually just just recently um, ordered a book actually uh, published by the same by the same publisher of my book by Hurst. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's called The Decline and Fall of Republic Afghanistan. It's a very fresh book. It's basically just telling the story. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to, to reading it so I can understand a little bit more about what happened. Yeah. Uh, but it is true that, you know, after 20 years of occupation, botched withdrawal, uh, there is a big question mark about the future of U.S. counterterrorism in, in Central Asia. Yeah. Uh, and there's also a very big question whether it's even a... Um, it's even necessary because a lot, I, I believe very strongly that the actual counterterrorism threat, the actual terrorism threat that America is going to face over the next 20 years is going to be domestic and it's going, not going to be Islamist at all. It's going to be basically white supremacists or Christian nationalist terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've already seen elements of that, uh, yes. attacks on the FBI, attacks, etc. Uh, and I think this is going to be, this is going to get worse. It has not peaked. Uh, this, is, uh, the, these, this is a population that doesn't have to cross the border. They're already in the United States. They actually believe the United States is them and it is theirs. They are mm-hmm. very heavily armed. Yeah. Uh, they have their own political leaders. They're very well resourced. I think this is the actual threat that they're going to have. Meanwhile, the Islamist scene itself, if you've been following, for example, the work of, uh, for example, Hassan Hassan, who writes mostly on, on uh, the evolution of Islamic groups. Islamist groups in in Syria and beyond, in Iraq, uh, the the trend really has been going towards, um, you know, from the caliphate model, which is let's create a global movement, mm-hmm. to the Emir- emirate model. In right. fact, this is why Islamist movements were very pleased with what happened with the Taliban, with mm-hmm. the with the with the withdrawal, because they took Taliban as a model, not in terms of their you know, social policies, etc. but in terms of let's not actually try to overreach and create this like global caliphate. Let's mm-hmm. simply create an emirate. Right. Uh, and so the emirate, the, so it's basically more about local politics and local, you know, uh, yes. you know, warlords trying to to gouge a piece of Syria or a piece of Iraq, etc., and say, this is kind of my, you know, my right. little emirate. Uh, so I, I, there is a big question mark about whether the US, I mean, whether, uh, sorry, whether you're gonna have terrorist groups in, 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 the, in the Middle East or the, the larger Middle East, or greater Middle East being, you know, including uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc., who would once again try to do what Al-Qaeda did in, in, uh, in 2001. I, I think, yeah, I think that international terrorists, I think Islamist groups are not going to be as interested in uh, attacking the West uh, they're, I think they'll be more interested in, uh, you know, uh, creating local local uh, kind of local uh, experiments and governance.
0: Yeah. Um, we should segue into another. Uh, we talked about essentially one form of, call it as you may, legitimate governance on, on the part of the Taliban in Afghanistan. You did also bring in the same in the same vein, um, you know, the the ruling of governance, what's the difference between Taliban? And you you mentioned people like MBS in the Axis and in that region. And so I do want to make sure we still touch base on that before we wrap up. Um, And we do have, you know, I do want to have last minute comments on um, just the overall vision and what you envision for the next 20 years, just to sort of summarize what we still have left to talk about here. Uh, But I, I would like for just a quick, you know, if potentially quick, uh, you know, your take on the counter-revolutionary access and basically what's going on currently following that infamous Biden visit in the Middle East, what its significance has been and and what you believe it's uh, reminiscent of potentially.
1: So what it's reminiscent of really is the situation in 2018. Mm -hmm. There is a pattern with dictators. i mean uh j- j- just to note here that i have i mean my my screen is up here and my 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 camera is up here so sometimes i don't look like i'm looking at you but i'm looking at you um, but uh there's a pattern with dictator generally if if you if you if you they, they take permission sorry they take uh engagement as permission so when you when you give them a chance, when you actually signal to them that you're not going to, you, you're, you're fine with them, you accept mm-hmm. them, you engage them, etc., they get worse, they get more repressive. So especially, this is very clear in the case of Mohammed bin Salman, in 2018, um, so in, in, uh, in March of 2018, he visited the United States and it was during the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. And he was at the peak of his... Of his popularity, global popularity. He met Bill Gates. He met Oprah. He met Jeff Bezos. Uh, he met uh, you know uh, uh, celebrities from you know I th- I th- you know from from Hollywood, etc. Dwayne the Rock Johnson, etc. Um, he was received as a as a hero, and he was using this narrative that he's the liberal reformer. He's going to change you know. He's going to change the region. He's going to make it more open, etc. And we, we warned at the time, we said, the more you give these people wind, the more you, you accept them and you, you put them on a pedestal, the mm-hmm. more they're going to get repressive. As yes. soon as he came back from that, from that trip, he started plotting about how, what do I do about the feminists? And within a, within a few weeks, he captured all of Saudi Arabia's women's rights movement the main, le- the main leaders of the movement, including, for example, Lujain al-Hadloul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he put them in prison where they were tortured, they were sexually assaulted, they were beaten, they were electrocuted, and they were isolated, and then they were smeared in public media. And then their families who, you know, who tried to protest also were put in prison. Yeah. You know. uh, and we warned them. We said, this is what happens when you do this. And again, when he did not face any repercussions, the next chapter was even more bloody because that was the Jamal Khashoggi assassination, the Jamal Khashoggi murder. After the Jamal Khashoggi murder, we felt that there is a sea change because you know the world. At least, of course, when it comes to Trump, we know Trump is Trump. Trump never pretended to care about human rights. But then, when it comes to to the you know political Democrats, political left generally, especially the establishment that like like Joe Biden. Uh, you know, you you've heard you heard his political, uh, you know, his his uh, his campaign promises that he's going to make Saudi Arabia into pariah state, etc. Mm-hmm. So he comes back, and by the way, like the whole the whole fist bump, you know, very uh, humiliating, you know, humiliating, of course, for Biden, but I don't really don't really care much for Biden, uh, but it's also like very very damaging for American soft power, for American prestige. And again i don't really i mean i'm not an american and you know i hope america prospers uh but then my my mission on on earth is not to care about american prestige uh especially given its history in 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 our region Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, um we said that this is going to be terrible
0: yeah
1: and he's going to get more repressive and this is exactly what happened we can see right now current events a woman, for example, who is, was a PhD student in the United Kingdom, getting a 35 year sentence for tweeting, 35 years, yeah. followed by 35 years. And she has little children, you know,
0: yes.
1: followed by 35 years travel ban. And then yesterday we heard about another sentence, which was 45 years in prison. Yes,
0: yes. And exactly. this
1: is not to mention And today morning, we've seen pictures of an assault on an orphanage, where mm-hmm. orphans are basically being beaten, dra- grabbed by the hair, et cetera. By, by uniformed police uh, this is what happens this is what happens with with dictators if you give them a chance when you know they 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 see it as permission uh, and they get worse
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so I mean uh, it, it's 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 true that um, I mean I mean when we wrote the book of the word the book before all of this and we there, there are certain things I mean, let me just put it this way there are certain things that are not uh, that, that are not inevitable there are certain things which are inevitable, things that are rooted in long-term changes, demographic changes, economic changes, technological changes that are long-term, the things that will happen sooner or later, let's say. Okay. But then there are other things that are not inevitable. Biden's normalization of MBS and bringing him back to the fold and giving him permission to, to be as repressive as he is and more repressive than he is was not inevitable. Biden shouldn't couldn't ha- could, could have said no, could, have not, could have, he could have not done that. Again, the, also the by the way the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the botching of the of of the withdrawal was not inevitable. It could have been done better. Uh, but again, in the end, uh, we, we're stuck with the with, with the with the cost. I don't know if this answers your question, but you know you're you're welcome to to tweak it a little bit and and throw it back at me.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I guess I wanted I want to see with what's happened in 2022. I can't quote you exactly in the book, but there's a portion of your book in which you say that, you know, as it is, um, that I don't know if it's related to this quote that I remember, the old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born, now is the time of monsters, but also it kind of, there's a section that sort of tied in, it's about a couple pages that talked about how maybe in the long run, somebody's figure like MBS potentially with, you know, how the world is shaping and, and how it's coming about, that he might be good for the cause. I don't want to misquote exactly incorrectly. I apologize for not being more uh, ready for this part of following up, but.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I think it's, it's the section where I talk about good enemies and bad enemies.
0: Yes, that's, um, that's what I want to talk about right there.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, good enemies, when we say a good enemy is an enemy whose who's opposition is useful for you. It forces you to become better. So let's say, for example, you play sports mm-hmm. and you have this opponent, who, who, uh, who, you know, who plays in the same league, plays in the same level, can, has a similar style to you, similar position in the team. And your opposition to him, your competition against him makes you a better athlete. Yes. So he's a good enemy. Of course, in sports, hopefully we don't have enemies. We have, you know, basically colleagues. But I'm mm-hmm. um, just using this really strategically to, to say that there are certain enemies that are good to have. And then there are, there are enemies which are bad to have. They're bad enemies because their enmity simply wastes your time. Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not useful for you. It's not strategic for you. It wastes your time. It wastes your energy, etc. My argument in the book was that MBS is a good enemy. Uh, he's the kind of, the kind of enemy who is good for us. He's good for our movement. He kind of makes our argument for us. He he uh, he convinces people of our point better than we would have convinced them just with with words. When we say that dictatorship is bad, when we say dictatorship is ugly, when we say that you should not. Normalized dictatorship. When we say that Biden, you know, screwed up, uh, you know, really an unforgivable action on his behalf. Uh, when we say that, uh, you know, uh, dictatorship that not does not bring prosperity, does not bring stability, etc. MBS is a really good thing to point at to say, you know, this is an this actually he actually makes our points. On the mm-hmm. other hand, are we good enemies for him? I don't think so. I think we are bad enemies for him. I mean, there's an asymmetry here. I think, like, if he focuses on us, he'll end up basically wasting his time, not really getting better at anything. But then MBS, to be honest, MBS's day-to-day worry is not really about us. It's not really about the international community either. His day-to-day worry really is about his own family. Yeah. Uh, you know, MBS really represents an, uh, uh, a coup against the Saudi uh, royalty, the Saudi family. And he, you know, this is this was a, a result of a coup that changed the way that politics is done within the Saudi royal family. And so he is, his, his real worry is that someone from within the family from the Al Saud is going to kill him. Uh, and I think this is long-term, I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't see how MBS stays in power for 40 or 50 years. I think it's really most likely that, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's gonna be violence within, you know, some, some kind of violence within the, within the royal family itself.
0: Okay, hey. um, because we do have to wrap up, um, I just wanted to ask you on your reflections within, through the book, the five years that you've taken um, to carefully curate and look at the current events at the time and to analyze it within, during the process that you're writing your book, and through your organization, through your foundation. In which you work uh, in many different capacities with an overall arching goal of on um, you know preparing for the future of democracy which you said you know 15 and 20 into 20 years which is not very far away to imagine but it's time to prepare nevertheless um i wanted to wrap up our conversation with what what the question uh being that what are your reflections on the first decade of the what you called initially the arab spring as a phase we are approaching the first decade and uh, and what are your and what are your visions or some reflections about what you think the next 20 years can look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, just to just to clarify, I, we described in the book, we described the Arab Spring as a phase, not as a as an event that happened in 2011. When we, we say basically it's it's we're, we're 10 years into a 30 year intergenerational transition uh, and that the region is going to look very, very, very different in 30 years than it was in 2011 uh generally speaking when you look at the the behavior of the of course the geopolitics of the region changed in since 2011 but what we saw is that this this counter revolutionary of course when we talk about counter-revolutionary axes there are really two uh the one that we're mostly involved day-to-day against is really mbs uh you know saudi, saudi monarchy emirati monarchy and and uh, and of course the, uh, the israeli regime uh and, you know, they're, they're close allies uh, in the region. But mm-hmm. uh, there is another, like we have to keep in mind that there is another counter-revolutionary axis, which is, which is uh, the Iranian axis. They also are against uprisings. They're, they're uh, th- of course, they, they use revolutionary language a lot of the time, but they're also against any change in the, in the power dynamics of the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reason why the, the, the first counter-revolutionary axis is more uh, dangerous for us is because it, it is more well-resourced. It is native um you know unlike Iranian influence for example in Syria is not, not really na- native um and also it is very well resourced sorry very well resourced and has this relationship with the west uh and you know they, they have access to tools that the Iranians for example don't have um and ultimately I think they're more insidious uh, essentially what we saw them do in, I think MBS is kind of like a good, uh, a good representation for the first 10 years, because we can see that like, like a, a leader like MBS was unimaginable before 2011. Uh, but we have, you know, we have like, uh, they, they had this option after 2011 to reform and they chose to repress. Uh, and this is not the first time, because every time they have a choice to either repress or reform, they always repress. But then, with the repression came additional moves, because they decided to seek protection. Uh, this time, they decided to seek protection because we ha- we're seeing really with the with the Biden visit, etc. Biden, by the way, was clear. He said that this visit is not about oil; it's about Israel. Uh, and there's a there's a broader, of course, context beyond that, because uh, Americans still want to withdraw from the region. They want to have, like, because even. Biden eventually wrote his own op-ed about this uh, in the Washington Post. And I think he ended the op-ed by saying we we don't have any American troops involved in combat in the region, which is really what the American people, this is what his message really, like, this is what you should care about. Um, But ultimately, uh, the idea is who is going to replace American hegemony? Like, who's going to be, if America is not going to, to be involved in combat troops in this region and doesn't want to, uh, who do we give the keys of the region to? Uh, the Obama situation was, let's give it to, let's basically get the Iranians and, and, and the, you know, the, the Gulf allies, et cetera, to share the region. Mm-hmm. Um, but now there's another configuration, which is the is- Israeli uh, alliance with these autocrats. Um, which is by the way, not a symmetric uh, relationship. I mean I think the, the Israelis have more uh, have, have an upper hand in the relationship here so it's not exactly it's not that the Israelis run the place. it's just that they have they have more leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this situation here where it's they're going to be um, um, uh, th- this is going to define, the the coming the coming uh, you know the coming decade in the region because we're seeing the rise of a new axis a new authoritarian uh, order mm-hmm. which Israel and its close Gulf allies are at the center uh, they're using as you can see Western tools Western uh, you know uh, good relationship with the West mm-hmm. Western technology uh, and they are using kind of like the the language of development economic development etc. Uh, and this is, I think, going to really define this really, Because the thing is, they're by doing this, the autocrats are detaching themselves even further from public sentiment. They're detaching themselves even further from the will of the people. Mm-hmm. And so they are setting up the situation. You know, like if this, if if in twenty eleven, the ch- the chasm between where the people are and where the regimes are was this much, and it right. led to, a, to an enormous collapse. Now it's yes. like this much, right? Uh, only thing that they're hoping that through this in enhanced repression, surveillance technology, etc., they can revolution-proof their countries. Right. And let's see what. I mean, again, uh, this has never worked anywhere. But let's see how they're going to fare. We have we still have 20 years ahead of us.
0: Right, right. Um, that's actually a very interesting analysis. Um, you brought in the the shifts in these uh, focuses between these countries. We did not. Uh, talk about Israel in the context of the last several topics that we were talking about but this is something to look into um, so I do appreciate that you uh, you brought that up and I really want to thank you for your time it's been absolutely a pleasure Um, I wanted to ask you one last question did I ask did I forget to ask anything that I should have did I uh, and is there something else that you would like to finish off our conversation I
1: I mean I mean, we've, 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 been, we've been talking for a while, uh, and, and I know that you st- it's very early where you are. Uh, so, so I guess you, you're, you know, waking up early also means that you have a fresher mind than I do. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, talking about these topics, we can really talk forever. So I, I, think, yeah, I think, I mean, if, if there's one thing I would say, uh, you know, if you want to host me again, I can come and talk about. It would be the Israeli angle that you that that you that you mentioned, because for a very long time Israel was not really part of the regional system of tyranny in in, a, in as direct a way as it is, but now it is, and I think that has long like far-reaching consequences, not only for Israel or the region, but really for the entire world.
0: Right. Well, again, I just want to thank you for your time. I'm very happy to host you again, assuming that I do get a chance at the podcast again, because the series podcast is shared amongst myself and my colleagues. So uh, hopefully I get, a, I get a chance pretty soon, but uh, thank you so much, Mr. Elberthedi. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, um, getting to know your background, to really deep dive in this conversation, which deserves hours and hours and hours and hours of dissection because, you know, we've, we can only scratch the surface essentially with the amount of time that we do have. I do appreciate your commentary on things kind of outside, you know, expanding. I know I threw those questions about Afghanistan, uh, at you, but uh, hoping to see how this all ties into, I think, a bigger conversation of this triangular relationship, these three major, uh, you know, actors, essentially representation of actors in a, in the, in the Swana slash MENA region. And so I do thank you again uh, for diving into it as much as you can with me. Um, for those of everybody watching our podcast, listening to it, wherever you are, um, please make sure you check out uh, the Middle East Crisis Factory and all of the works of Mr. Ayed el Uh, And please make sure you subscribe to this series podcast for future updates on our episodes. Thank you again.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, Marcel.